power. <laughs> and shop, Poland came, when I even start. Just, there's just so many ways I could go with this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll choose the last one. So, Paul and Kate joined New Gen. Sure. I mean, you guys were a young married couple um, all those years ago, three kids. Um, and it feels a little bit like we've grown up together. Some of us more than others. Those stuff being Kate and I, more than Paul and Tim. Um, and we served on the old ship here together. Um, <laughs> the old sheep. And uh, then Paul and Kate moved over to New Gen Studies, which then planted out as one home church. Um, Kate is from the UK, and Paul is from KZN, and uh, they have many, many children. Um, um, something that we do need to know is that, it's just something very special and fundamental in, in our friendship, is that Steph introduced Paul to the football. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, where they're at, they're going to tell you about tonight, but God's really been tagging at them, speaking to them in various beautiful ways, and calling them to, to mission. So I think as a kind of pastoral couple, to live in a church house in Watch is about as bum in the butter as you get. Um, but we should know in this Christian life, we should never get too comfortable because God does enjoy putting the rag from under us. So he has been calling them on a new adventure. It's been really um, exciting and even second-hand terrifying to just see what he's calling them into. And yeah, so they're going to talk about that a bit. And um, we're so excited for you guys um, in that bittersweet kind of real way. So have a great um, but I'm also just going to say, just in terms of maximizing their time, I wonder, I wonder if I could just extend our expectations to, uh, it's now 7 o'clock, I just want to give them uh, enough time, so maybe uh, 10 to 5 to 8. If you're going to dash before then, I understand, but uh, just to manage expectations, um, 10 to 5 to 8. Okay. okay, Father, I want to thank you for this couple. I want to thank you um, just for bringing them through this evening to us here at the border that will be the substance of their lives, for um, the story that it tells, the challenge it is to us, and how it inspires us and glorifies you. God, we thank you for what you're doing in their lives as they come and share now with what we uh, I pray that you would be like sponges and you just soak it up uh, more than just their story, you would soak up. Thank you, guys. I like sitting down. It makes me feel like a, someone on a panel or something. Um, but we love coming back. There's your mom. We, um, <laughs> we, we love coming back to New Gen. It feels like, like as we're saying, God has grown us up here. We were here in 2006. Um, and in many ways, actually, journey we're going to share with you tonight feels like a, a replicating in a far more complex, far more terrifying way than the conversation we had with people who were in the UK. So Kate was finishing a degree, we were one year married, we were in the UK, sort of starting to get settled, and Pete and Jan came over for a conference in 2005, 
And um, I remember we were feeding some stirrings around here. We come back to South Africa. We were staying in the UK. And um, we sat and chatted with Pete Jan. And Pete said, come, we'll do you good. Um, as many of you would have heard if you've been here for a long time, those same words. And so we did. And it was fairly terrifying, actually. We were putting all our... We didn't have very much. We put what we did have on a little container from the UK. We'd come down here uh, to the Cape once before uh, on our honeymoon. Actually, twice. I came down one weekend to ride the office when I was 13. And we came once to visit Pete and Jan on our honeymoon. And that was our total exposure to the Western Cape. Uh, Clarence and Azalea rule. Many of you would remember them. They put us up. I mean, now I look back and I'm like, I just thought, you know, we were doing them a favor to stay with them. But all their kids and all of that to look back on it. And they put us up for five weeks with no jobs. We had no house. We Three weeks, Kate says, but, you know, I can't ask because I'm an evangelist. So I double everything. Um, we, we've got our first home on, what's that? What's that street? What's that street called? We came, baby. Andrews Victoria's with the owls. You see a house there with the owls on it. That was our very first home here. Yeah. And all our children, yeah, all five of them, and just watched God just faithfully grow us up. And as Kat said, it's absolutely true. I am particular, and I'm not even kidding. I really needed to get a bit older. I've actually really enjoyed just the process of God allowing me an extra 15, 20 years. We've not been here that long, but almost. Um, and just the maturing of God, just in the seasons and the grace. So I'd like to just say one thing before we launch into our story, and that's just a little bit about one hope. And the reason that I say that is, um, let me if I ask you a question. Uh, what are the what are the Vodacom shares today? Anyone? Anyone know what the Vodacom shares are? Okay, I'll tell you who would know. The person who has Vodacom shares. If you have Vodacom shares, you're very interested in where they are today. Just like we are suddenly extremely interested in the exchange rate um, in the UK, and it's suddenly sitting at 24.6, highest it's ever been. So you're looking at those kind of things with very new eyes. And the reason I say that is because part of your shares is one hope. Part of your fruit in this church is the plant that was sent out in 2009, which we currently lead, which actually is like your Vodacom shares. When it goes up, you go up. When it goes down, you go down. And it's quite a thought, and I'm, I'm thinking about that as we leave. And guys are saying, this is so hard, there's a new person coming in, they better looking than you, they better picture than you, you know, etc. I'm actually looking at it like a company and going, actually, not, not in the corporate sense, you know what I'm saying? And actually saying, this is incredible. We have bought nine years' worth of shares in this body. And if this body succeeds, and if one hope flowers, that's our fruit too. So I just want to tell you guys that we just came off the sweetest weekend with Gareth and Nadine Bowley. They're a couple who were married in Jubilee, met as teenagers. Stephen Ryan, many of you would know, was brought to the Lord by Gareth as a 16-year-old boy. Um, they've been in an incredibly um, tough environment in the Manson Toti, leading a very multiracial church. It's larger, more Zulu than um, in, in English. And he co-leads with a guy called Robert Flamini. They've co-leads together, I think it's for the last eight years. They've led there for 20 years. They felt like they were going to be there for another 20 years. They then started feeling last year that God was going to move them. And what's that? Uh, I was just to hurry up. Probably should. Um, that God was going to move them. Gareth says, not in your life. And in February, as elders, when we were praying, we felt God start to drop their name into our hearts. Stephen Casworth wonderfully part of that process, and we gave him a call and just said, guys, we have no idea, but this is what we're feeling in our hearts, and within two or three weeks, they got back to me, not to our eldership, because I didn't even know them yet, and said, we resonate, we 
think this is God, let's start the process. And this weekend, they were with us, it was beautiful, Steph came and joined us on Sunday morning, um, and our church just loved them, just absolutely loved them. And it was just the sweetest of moments as we hand over a baton to someone far more experienced, um, just a proper building building gift to people who come and build on the foundations, which actually Mark Tennant began laying, Stephen Kaz continued laying, Kate and I had the privilege of taking over and continuing to lay, and now Gareth and Amy come and lay. So I just wanted to make that link, tell you that the church is doing well, tell you that your fruit is safe, tell you that your vertical shares are going up. Um, it's a good thing. And so we just want to praise God right on the front end of that. So thanks for the advice. Babes, tell some of the story. So we're probably going to go, there we go. we've got three points. So the first one's going to be a bit longer. Um, and the, so the, the points are just, I like this. <laughs> I like to know where I'm going. So we've got, um, so basically how our story, how we feel that we can be called. And then we'll, we'll talk about how it's felt to be called. And then where we are now. Then there will be space for questions and answers, I think. Um, but I was also going to talk, so maybe we should let him talk first, <laughs> in case you actually want to see your best tonight. Um, so uh, the the idea of, of, of starting a story somewhere is sometimes quite difficult, and then, um, you know, I, I just decided to start at the beginning. Um, and I think underpinning everybody's story is how God made them. He tells us that he knit us together in our mother's womb, and we are, we are that as, as the fundamental start point for all of our journeys. That is who we are. And of course, we come into the world and we have to conform and you know, we choose to conform and we make each other conform, but essentially, we are who we are. And sometimes we assume that our calling can't really be linked to who we are. And I think we spent, as, as Jesus followers, we spent so much time trying to, um, trying to submit ourselves to the sanctification process that we. Sometimes think if something feels as natural as, as just this is me, that it, it can't be right. And that was the case for my um, my sense of, of longing um, to be in the UK again. Um, but I really felt for years, um, because it, it obviously with, with everything it has a dark side as well, but it has an unhealthy side. And for me the unhealthy side was longing for it and letting it distract me from being here. Um, in South Africa, and that changed. That really did change. And after a few years of being in South Africa, especially after having children, and there was absolutely a, a deep love for South Africa, and an absolute desire to not leave. Um, it, Can I just sorry jump in for one second? I'm just actually assuming that you all know that we're going to the UK, right? Do you know that already? Yeah. Okay, I'm just checking it. Not just starting to tell a story that you actually don't know about. So that's just a assumption. And another little thing: we're leaving at the end of this year, so that's been settled this weekend. In December, we're gone. January, Gary and Andy are coming to take over one day. Okay, sorry, Gary. Um, but so I think the reason that I'm talking about this is because I think sometimes the, the sense of calling that we have exists with a completely paradoxical reality as well. So my absolute desire to be in South Africa did not eliminate the desire for me to return to the UK. Um, and so for me, the story began 
basically a little bit, you know, a little bit before Paul. I married Paul and he was one of six. Um, his, or, you know, one of 11, but six grown-up children. And um, five of them wanted my British passport. Paul <laughs> was the only one who did it. <laughs> I remember talking to his, his aunt and uncle one night saying, I'm just I'm not really prepared to go to this. You know, just feeling like that, <laughs> the feeling of like, okay, Jesus, this doesn't seem to make sense. Um, but so that is why I'm sharing that. So a few a few years ago, um, Paul's heart started to change in terms of just, um, you know, he's always said, look, if you need to go back, we'll go back. So imprisoned here, um, but <laughs> that would make it great. Also, hearts wanted to change, and then um, I could labour this point, but essentially that meant that we um, made a few decisions, like my contribution to my UK pension, and you know, sort of thinking long term, maybe this would be okay, or maybe we can finance this because we'll be in the UK when we're in our 60s or whatever. But it really did feel like a kind of 20 year away, or 10 to 20 years, because we felt like it was we didn't want to we didn't want to raise our children. There. This is perfect. This is the perfect place to raise children. Um, so we applied logic, which is not a bad thing to do. Um, and yeah, that's where we kind of felt that we were. And then we had the sabbatical last year, but we sabbatical for three months. We came back from that feeling like, yeah, we've got another 10 years to give. We did, um, you know, we did some financial planning, did some moving of money so that we could make that happen. And um, it was good. Um, however, um, there was one, there was one moment um, about a year ago where Paul was um, at a course, and uh, there was a course on um, the history of the church and how um, people had come from Europe into Africa and brought the gospel, and you know basically now Europe needs the gospel to be re-declared, um, and just a call of, of who's going to who's going to do that, and he came home and spent. Um, the eve of the night, essentially wrestling with God over, um, essentially whether he could trust our, trust our children to God, you know, God saying, do you trust me with your children? And Paul saying, like, well, I know the right answer, um, but no. Um, and so for an entire night, the man couldn't sleep, like this would have taken me 400 nights to, to sort of overcome, but Paul to miss a night's sleep. You messed up. <laughs> it was God. <laughs> so, but then it felt like the next morning when he had finally come to the place where he said, yes, I do trust you. Um, but that was just a test. Um, and so we kind of, we shared it a few days later and it was great. I was also relieved. This is the thing. Existing in me was this desire but also a resistance. Anyway, um, so later in the year, a number of circumstances led to his trip to the UK last year being um, delayed, but he went over for an advance leave this time, and God began to speak. Yeah, so uh, as Kate is saying, I think a very uh, helpful way to say it is just if we look at the human metric of where we have right now in studies, uh, every, every human box feels ticked. Like, I think it's a different case. We were getting to a few years ago, the church was able to buy a home cash. We renovated that home, we live in it, it's amazing. 
Our children ride their bicycles to school. Our boys are all risk. Our girls are very much high. Our kids are instinct phenomenal schools. Like all the human metrics are protected. I've done the, the first five years of a terrible pay. Um, I want slightly better pay, much better pay. All these things, these, these very, very human things are good. And right in the middle of that, we came back from sabbatical. I remember going on family camp. One of our two couples in our church were going through horrific divorces that had to do with the other couple. It was just horrible. My first weekend coming back to family camp, I just watched this man with his hands in the air, eyes streaming, eyes, tears streaming down his face. His daughter standing next to him was about 13 years old. And I just felt this surge of faith in my heart. God, I can do another 10 years mastering these people. Just like we want to, we want to be with your sheep, we want to care for these very, very real things that are going on. And right into that moment, it felt like God cut across all of that. I went over, did a very brief story, um, went to the UK, went to Wales, feeling like we we're settled. Instead of what I had a conversation with Johannes, one of our elders, and just said, like, we feel like we're here for the next 10 years. He said, we agree, hooray, let's carry on. Um, and while I was there, God just began to speak in most clear ways, but it was completely unobvious to me. I didn't think God's calling me to the UK. I just thought God is stirring our heart for evangelism and for studies. I was with a guy in Wales called Ben. He took us to a coffee shop. Arno, who's from Eastern Cape, Arno, who played the brain, who with us. And um, it was just a picture of, of these valleys. I think there's 60 villages. It was like a satellite picture, 60 towns. And, and Ben just said, there's two or three gospel centered churches all these 60 times. And something in my heart just began to break. And I just stood there and I just cried. And it was really awkward. I was in a coffee shop with these two fairly burly men. And I was just crying and they didn't know what to do. And so they just very kindly went and sat down and got a cup of coffee while I just stood there for five minutes trying to compose myself. And this verse of Matthew 9 began to, I'll use it a little bit later again, it began to beat in my heart where it says Jesus looked upon the people and had compassion because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus says, and so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters into the harvest field. So since the harvest is ready, the harvest is ripe. And so this reality began to sink into my heart. And we were just continuing. I wasn't saying anything to Kate. Loads of little moments right through to preaching in Northern Ireland at the end of my trip in a very embryonic new, uh, new church plant. And someone I've never met just came up to me and said, I feel like God gave me two pictures for you last night. Can I share them with you? And gave me these two profoundly impactful pictures about effectively God caring for our family but in, and God using us as the first. The picture was of, of a buffalo and of one buffalo standing off to the side looking over a plane but being terrified to cross it because there was danger and there was peril and there were lions in the plane, that as that buffalo would respond to God, so God would send other buffalo with faith behind it, kind of saw it going and said, okay, we'll go as well. Um, so I logged all these things on the plane, coming home, journaling, just writing, 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 and the next minute right there, somewhere 10,000 feet up, I just had this moment of, oh my goodness, this is God calling us to the UK. And if I had a journal on the standard shut, I was not a happy camper. About that I'm an African boy through and through, I am terrified of secular world, European, American type things. Um, I got home, I was grumpy for days. Kate eventually came to me after day three or four, 
and said, what is going on? You've been gone for three weeks. We've missed you so much. The kids are trying to engage with you. You just are emotional. You're grumpy. And I just said, babes, I don't know what to tell you, but this is what I feel like God is saying. And I'd written out ten pages of how God had been speaking. And every moment I've had in those four days, I was just rushing off to my office to get on my face and just cry out to God. Like, what I'm, this is just, I was honestly just grieving, to be honest. Just, you're just weeping because you're just saying, God, what about this? What about that? What about the weather? What about the house? God, just like, we're going to go into some tiny little house in the UK. What about Auntie Princess or who works for me and who does my mind? Like, these ridiculous human, human things that begin to run through your mind when you realize that they're not going to be there anymore. Um, and all of those fears, because we don't want to paint some rosy picture, this is very, very gritty and real and hard. And so Kate and I began to pray. We began to chat with Stephen Kaz. They were the first people we went to just because they're such a long friendship and their incredible wisdom and good looks and incredible leadership and all of those good things that you know and love. And they just said, guys, let's start praying. So we just started to pray. Just us two couples, no one else. A few weeks, maybe five weeks, six weeks later, we said, what do we do now? They said, well, let's invite another couple in. So we invited Arno and Claire. They'd been there with us. They're 10 years older than us. And we just thought, hey, it's got wisdom in that. Let's get them in. And we started praying with them. And I remember sitting in December, so we're about two months in, um, and sitting with Arno and Claire in, it's a place called Cogbay, having a little croissant or something. And Arno just turned to us at the end of about three or four hours of conversation and just said, I think you know what God's saying to you to do. It's just really difficult. You just need to accept that God is actually calling you to do this. And jumping in the car and my heart was just like on the floor. And to be, what was, what's been really surprising for us, we'll get into some of the emotions of things just now, because I think it's helpful for you to know if God is calling you, these things are not just, yay, let's go. Um, it's been incredibly interesting and tough watching Kate process what we thought would be absolutely delightful in terms of, yes, she's going to go home, it's back to the UK, and actually just the friendships that God has built around us and the, the joy of South Africa and how God has made us South African. We've just experienced months of just emotional roller coaster grief. We've just sat with people and we I, I can't cry anymore. I, I would cry more tonight if I could, but I just can't. We've just had so many nights of tears with close friends and precious moments. Um, and we'll say some wonderful good things that God's done as well. It's not just sadness, but just to give a little window into, uh, into that. So back to you. Um. I was going to ask you how I felt to be called, but you already just said what I was going to say, so I guess it is my turn. Um, so, okay, how does it feel to be called? Well, <laughs> um, most of you will know um, what it feels like to be called, because we've all had this to an extent. Um, I will say, you know, you watch a movie, uh, like a, a rom-com, um, and like, it's all lovely, and it all works out the way you want it to, and that's how you plan a wedding. <laughs> and, um, and then you don't really think about marriage. Um, but it feels a bit like that. It feels like, you know, I get teary thinking about like, 
the moment that I merge from <laughs> arrivals at Heathrow and there's my family throwing petals and doing dances. And, um, and it, you know, from the moment of actually telling them that it kind of went wrong because the kids were in the background and they didn't really hear us properly. <laughs> it's the whole thing. Just this so messy and so not a rom-com. I mean, mercifully, right, because most of them are awful. But um, I think it just, it, like, disappointing is completely the wrong word, and anticlimactic is not quite the right word, but it's somewhere in that, you know, it, 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 well, surprising even. But it, it's been amazing in the same way that marriage is amazing but just not at all in the ways that you expected. Um, so that's how, it, that's how I feel with this, this call. And, but the most exciting thing is to see how it's all woven together. And even, I might, I might get a bit emotional because I've been suppressing my emotions for a lot of all that stuff. But, um, well, oh, that's very funny. I haven't suppressed a thing. <laughs> I've tried, I've tried. But just being here, and um, I was in a cat that 15 years ago, Paul and I stood here before the building was up, and we led worship with Esther in a prayer. And it was hard, that it was good, and it was hard, and it's going to be good and hard until we die. I'm convinced of that now. Um, but the the investment that we've had from others and the investment that we've been able to bring alongside all these together to bring us to this moment. So the calling sure that we can make it and it is a good thing to, to think about these big life changing one of the you know once in a lifetime moments. It's good to, to use those moments, but they're not they're not the only thing. The exciting part is that God has woven a picture and I remember it's still standing up here and bringing a picture. I still did perceive the most wonderful woman who's taken part of it. Um, standing up here and sharing a picture of pixels and how God is building a picture but every every quiet time, every moment that you choose Jesus, it's just one more pixel in that picture. And that is exactly what this is what this feels like to me. Is it just a piece of the puzzle just became to it after years of pixels. So just in the last uh, six weeks or so, we've done case done one trip to the UK and we did one together just to go and um, explore because we have felt God extremely clearly say, hand over one hope, I want you to come, I want your family to come, obviously we're not leaving anyone behind. Um, but we have no idea yet where we're going. We haven't had that clarity on what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so I've had thousands, feels like, of humiliating conversations as far as I'm concerned. I'm like strength finder strategy number one. And I'm sitting with people who are going, so how are you going to do this? How are you going to fund this? Where are you going? I mean, it's not they're not complicated questions, right? I mean, you'd expect someone moving their family to know. Um, and I was crying out to God maybe four weeks ago, just saying, Lord, this is so hard, this is so difficult. And I had a, a moment where I said to the Lord, I felt like a woman, that, um, that, that just take that, delete that sentence. <laughs> I felt like, you know the story 
You know the story of the woman pushing through the crowd to touch Jesus in her desperation. I'm sure you've heard it preached and how she made everyone unclean who she touched, you know, trying to get to Jesus. I felt like something, what I'd imagine she would have felt like. And I was at the night and I was away and I was just I was saying, Lord Jesus, you have to tell us where to go. I need to know where to go. I need to take my family for the sake of Kate for, for flourishing. We need to know where to go. And I'm not going to stop praying tonight until you tell me. Was that desperate? And I went out and I was walking and I was praying. About an hour later, I felt the Holy Spirit begin to minister to me and say to me, "You don't need to know. You don't need to be desperate to know where to go. You don't need to be desperate for strategy. You need to be desperate to trust me. That's what I'm doing in you. you need to trust me." The next morning, I woke up. I was out praying, and I said to the Lord, "Lord, I'm still up. Just resting with this thing. I do trust you. You've been saying that to us the whole process." And I had a picture of, you know, you know, um, tomato sauce spaghetti, that vile stuff, that, that stuff that comes in a can. And I had a picture of that just stocked on a plate. Like a whole just gross tomato sauce spaghetti just stocked on a plate. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, this is what this process feels like to me. It feels like this sloppy tomato sauce spaghetti. And then I began to pray and I said, Lord, please, can you can you line up the spaghetti? Can you do something that makes it feel ordered, some clarity? And in my mind, I was like an OCD, like all the spaghetti spilled tomato sauce, but lined up nice and neat, all like where, you know, you do those things where on the one side there's something, on the other side you kind of join them, you know, like the apple goes to the boy who's hungry, those kind of things. And in that moment, I just felt God saying to me, this is not what the spaghetti is for. I'm not trying to order it. I'm not trying to bring clarity to the spaghetti. I'm trying to feed you. I'm trying to nourish you. And that has, honestly, that's been the, the hardest and the most beautiful and the most enduring part of our process is it feels that God is so much more interested in what he's doing in Kate and I, in our character, in our marriage, in forming us, in shaping us, than he isn't going, is where you ought to go. And that is excruciating. Because... That is such a felt need. Lord, what must, where must we go and what must we do? And God's just going, that's not on the table yet. I will tell you. We're not, we're not thinking we're just going to go. No idea. We're just going to live in Heathrow, you know, like the terminal for five years. Um, not like that. But God will tell us. But he's just going, it's not my priority. My priority is your heart. I'm after you. I'm after your family. And so that might not be everyone's experience, I'm sure. But for us... Feels like God is just saying to us that the biblical part of this is where God says to Abraham, leave your family, leave your home, and go to a place that I will show you. And we are living right slap bang in the middle of the, that I will show you. And so that's uh, difficult. And then right in the midst of that, man, the encouragement and the joy and the faithfulness of God to speak to us. Just a number I could. We could speak for hours, just telling you stories of how kind God has been. One tiny little story about fish, a ridiculous story. About October last year, right when we were starting to pray, um, I, I go down to, there's a river close to our home pretty regularly. It's loads of trash. Um, there's quite a lot of um, street people that, that kind of stay on the river upstream, so they would empty out the trash into the river and we come down to where where I like to go is quite secluded, so the cleaners that clean the river don't really get down there. And there was just loads of trash, and I just felt something in my spirit of look for a fish. And I thought, God, a fish comes alive in this river. 
this look at this, this junky room, there's literally like pillows and like things all over this river. And uh, I started praying for a fish, and then there's this little bridge that crosses over um, Yester River that goes across to Yaya's Cafe, if you know Stephanie's. And um, on one of our dates, I think it was January, we were crossing over the bridge, and I was busy peering over, looking at things, very intently. And Kate says, What are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for a fish. She said, what are you looking for a fish for? So I told her this little story of, I don't know, I just feel like maybe, and it's not a superstitious thing, it's not like I wasn't looking for a sign. I saw an older colored gentleman on the side of the river one day, and he was about 70, and I said to him, how long have you been here? He said, this is the river I used to swim in when I was five years old. So I said, well, have you ever seen a fish in this river? He said, no. He said, absolutely, yes. Down here, you never seen a fish. So now I'm like, oh, I'm just holding this picture in my head, like this impossible fish. Anyway. That's the story. No, I'm kidding. Fast <laughs> forward a few weeks, and there's a, a moment where we're fasting and we're praying and we're just crying out to God. And I'm walking along that river, and I, I literally say these words. I say to the Lord, Lord, and it's about my children. That's the hardest thing in this process. It's been, Lord, take, we go, and we got, we're going to be five. I'm just like, what is this child going to learn in this country? This is really life my angst comes from. Um, and, and there was just such a certainty over those four days, just day after day, God was just saying, I've got you, I've got you, I've got you. And on the fourth day, something in my heart just locked, and I literally said, Lord, I don't need to see any fish in you. I know you've got us. I know we're safe. And 50 seconds later, there's eight little fish swimming in the river next to me. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I came back the next day, there were 60 or 70 little fish in this pool, just in this pond. And I just felt the Father speak to me, it's not just you I'm going to look after. I don't know who the eight is, by the way, I'm not having another baby. There might be one of you coming with us. Um, <laughs> I get it. Um, but I felt God say, it's not just for you, it's for me. I can't just, I'm just going to just sustain your family. And there was rubbish. I've got a photo of it on this moment with this rubbish all of this river. River. And just feeling the Spirit say, I'm going to take more. It's you to sustain more. So then, I don't know where else we want to go with this, but it's some window into what it's felt like. And then moments, I must say this, sorry, moments of extreme joy where God just fuses faithfulness. I won't help um, one morning in the UK, Kate was sleeping next to me on this trip. There wasn't very much money in our bank account, and I had some people looking after our kids, and I thought I need to move a little bit to the credit card just to make sure we you know there's groceries or whatever. I opened my bank account, there's 250,000 Rand more than what I was expecting to find in there. I, I, I got, Kate, hey, hey, I can show you this, just with a reference gift. We haven't spoken to anybody about money because we don't have anything to tell them. Can't say, come and support us, we're going to do a church plant because we don't know what we're doing. So we can't ask anyone for anything because and someone just in the providence of God just sends a little thing with a little reference gift, quarter of a million, and God just in that moment goes, I told you, I got you. So incredible. So there's I don't want us to leave with a sense of this is hard, this is bad, ask God never to call you anyway. In this moment, it's the sweetest, most joyful, most faith expanding thing you've ever experienced. And our kids are accessing God in ways that we couldn't have imagined. Daniel's 11 years old. He comes to our family devotions. I feel like God's spoken this to me from his word. 
shares with the family. This is the first. Just watching these things unfold in your, in your kids, okay? Is this helpful? Okay, so then I don't need to preach the other thing. We can just do this. Um, okay, so we have um, committed to handing over the church <laughs> um, at the end of December. Um, so that apparently we can't change our minds on. Um, so. to take care of and um, all those practical joyful things we, um, yeah. and we are looking into different opportunities in the UK obviously um, and we there are some real options there's one in Cardiff there is one I mean potentially there's a few within the UK within England and um, it's just a case now of, of asking God, what is it that you want us to do? Are you wanting us to go and support something that's already happening? Are you wanting us to take over a church that is uh, struggling or that needs a leader? Um, essentially, that just laying it down again and asking, asking God what it is and being patient for His timing, um, which is obviously really uncomfortable. Um, but again, good. I mean, it's fun. There's a One Republic song that basically talks about, you know, I've been around the world and broken my arm and I've nearly died here and I've, you know, have my, no money there, but at least I can say I lived. And I feel like that. that <laughs> I feel like that. At least we can say we lived. Oh, yeah. Sorry, they're not a Christian fan. Well, I think he was. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, but I really want to the, one of the biggest things we realized going over to the UK on our kind of rookie trip was just how different the context is. We took us off guard. And so one of the very real options that we're looking at is actually going back into the marketplace for a season. Um, I was in business before taking over um, one home of studies in a bit of a crisis moment. Those of you who haven't traveled long with New Gen. Um, so it doesn't frighten us. It's something that we are to do, we just need to get God clearly right now on whether that's the big question in front of us right now is do we go and contextualize in a marketplace kind of way for the next few years and we do that by finding it a local church that we love and want to serve and just settle our family as best we can. So part of the complexity of these kind of processes is you feel like you're trying to make decisions from very far away about places you have no idea what they would like. So we my heart at least I think we Fairly reluctant to step into a church leadership space. There's plenty of opportunities, loads of need, and we see that and we want to respond to that. God is calling us to that, but we're very nervous to take over something, and you then are, you need to be there for like eight years, ten years, in order to care for the people. You can't just kind of two years later say, hey, this is not what we thought, sorry, good luck finding your next pastor. That's not what you're about. So those are kind of some things that you'd like to pray for us. I think pray for our kids. I think pray for um, some of the complexities of context. And we, we don't want to minister for five years. We feel like God is calling us there for the long term. So we don't want to be a flash in the pan. 
we want to say, God, if we need three years of contextual equipment, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's understand how these people receive the gospel, how they think, so that we can be there for, who knows, 20 years, 30 years, hopefully, even longer, preaching God's word. Because the why, we're telling you our story, but the, the why of all of this is that God has caught our hearts around the need. Guys, you can't imagine the need in the UK right now, in Europe right now, the need for the gospel. We are so spoiled in South Africa. We have an open heaven in the sense of anywhere you go, you can find any time you go to, I don't know how many of the answers in where Steadies has loads of churches that I would be happy for my children to go to. But understand the gospel. And that's not a bad thing. We're not criticizing that. Praise God for that. We need more churches in Stellenbosch. We have thousands of students who haven't been reached with the gospel. We need more. We're not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we can go there realize that people have never heard the name of Jesus since they're under 30 years old. They hear it. Where do they, where do they get it? No one teaches it to them in schools. It's not on any television programs. They never set foot in a church. They might sing one or two Christmas carols. Where are they to hear about Jesus? And so that's the driving part of why we feel we need to go. And we would prefer, in our own human sense, to stick about. Stick around here. Yeah to be honest. And we sometimes say, God, why? What's, what are we going to do? Like we're one little family moving into one huge country. What are we going to achieve? And God in his wisdom just knows that he needs to do what he does. All we can do, I remember once reading a quote that says, a soldier's only response when God says, how that you must jump is God, how high? That's it begins. That's what we do. Is that helpful? Um, can I share for like 10 minutes on Romans chapter 10? Is that alright? Can you just jump up quickly? Can you sit down? Can you jump up quickly? Just shake out a little to how high exactly. I'd like to see you go three meters. We go. Just like, just break yourselves up is basically what I'm asking. And then I'll just do something very, very, very quick encouragement. Called to stay or choose to disobey. 
Just those three buckets. I think it's the only three buckets that Scripture give us. I think every person is called to go, called to stay, or they choose to disobey. I think those are the, the three things. I've got a whole exegesis in Romans that I'm not going to do, apart from to say that when Paul writes Romans, if you go and read it, you can go chapter by chapter and you can see how he begins to unpack the gospel. Romans chapter 1, God is angry, we commit a lot of sin, we're evil, all of a sudden fall short of the glory of God, is Romans chapter 1. But Jesus is introduced. Romans chapter 2 continues with God is the judge. How grateful we are that God is the judge. Chapter 3 is that we are all evil. We're all guilty, but only Jesus can save us. And so Paul begins to paint this really hectic picture of who we are. You get to chapter 7, and Paul speaks this, this powerful text, one of my favorite texts in the whole book, in the whole uh, Bible, where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself constantly doing. And then in the SV, there's this beautiful thing where he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That, like, for me, feels like a life uh, resonance. There's so many moments in my life where I go, Lord, wretched man that I am. Where in prayer or something, I see I see the moment of, of who I really am before God. And a wretched man, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, but praise me to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will deliver us. And so this is the story of Romans, right? It goes on and on. Chapter 8 is just how, how lavish the love of God is. It's like... You continue to sin. The Holy Spirit has these amazing plans for your life. And you can never be separated from the love of God. What can separate you from the love of God? Height, nor depth, nor, nor power. You guys know these verses, right? And that's held in this beautiful tension with Romans 7, which is wretched man that I am. So sometimes I feel like, oh God, you just love me. Oh, how you love me. Like I'm like a tree bending beneath the weight of your wind. You know that lovely song? No, David Carter. Um, very strange song. I'm going to stop you with kisses and all sorts of strange stuff. That one is. That one. And sometimes you feel like that, and sometimes you feel like chapter 7. Like, I, I, I want to do this, but I can't, and I try, and, and I'm wretched, and all these all these things. And then you get to chapter 10. Um, actually, chapter 9 is worth mentioning, even though we're racing. Because Paul writes this, he says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled, listen to the adjectives, with bitter sorrow. An unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. This is what he says at the beginning. Nice. He's painting a picture of the gospel, how dark it is, evil Jesus, 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 my sin, the love of God. And then he says, I would do anything to bring you here. You can hear the evangelistic fervor running through him, right? It's incredible Romans. And I just wonder if any of this sounds familiar in you, in, in your life. It does, it does for me. All, all the above resonates when I think about the lives of those, not just my own life, but I think about my friends, I think about those who don't know Jesus, I think about my family, I think about those co-workers, people that you know, that you love. And this description of Romans is so accurate on our world. It's an evil world. Jesus comes to save, people reject it, people struggle, accessing the love of God, accessing this wretched man that I am, all of these things. I'm, I'm trying to paint a very, very big picture. Does that make sense? And somewhere in the middle of all of that, I want to contend that so few respond to God's call to go. 
that so many don't know how to truly stay in kingdom-expanding ways, and that many choose, even without knowing it, um, to disobey. So we reach Romans 10. Romans 10 says, verse 14, How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. And it's, it's a very obvious passage, right? Um, let me explain it like this. I've used the illustration of, of the vaccine. Did that cause any stir in this church? Am I allowed to go to the vaccine? I'm going to go there because it's fun. Perhaps it's been advised. Um, honestly, since I had the vaccine, I feel um, great, except that I have a far more fragmented wider family. Um, and WhatsApp group, I have an unusual affinity toward Bill Gates. I don't know why I just want him to leave the world. I'm not sure what that's about. And oddly, but very helpfully, when I put my cell phone in my back pocket, it just charges. I think it's like some radiation effect or something. <laughs> okay. Guys, I'm just, I'm just messing with you, obviously. <laughs> let's, let's, rather, let's rather leave that aside. And let me, let me rather go for a hypothetical cure for HIV. Anyone can agree that that would be incredible. Right? A hypothetical cure for, for HIV. What if, let me ask you this. If we look at this text in Romans, what if it existed but we didn't know? What if it existed and you didn't know? What if you heard rumors about it but you just, you just didn't know whether to believe them or not? Right? That's what Paul's saying when he says, how can they call on him to save them? If there was this cure for HIV and it could save them but they didn't know. How can they call? How can they ask anyone for the cure if, unless they believe in him? Unless they know that it's there, right? Then Paul's answer is obviously, well, they can't. They can't. You can't call on Christ to save you if you don't believe in him. That's his point. It's very simple. Paul goes a step further and he says, how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? You can't go desperately rushing around looking for an HIV cure if you don't even know that it exists. You wouldn't do it. If that happened, surely the first thing we, we would see in Africa would be, if it did happen, we'd see a massive rollout of information beginning to go to people to say, hey, hear this news, there's a new vaccine, or let's not call it the vaccine, there's a new some way or other to help us be cured from HIV, right? There'd be some way of creating that people could hear. Whatever you did, then you'd want them to hear, you'd want the masses to, to hear. Paul carries on and he says, how can they hear about them? Unless someone tells them. How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So you begin to imagine a world where people would literally be employed to go and tell other people about the, the HIV vaccine. HIV, sorry, sorry, cure. There would be multiple one-on-one -on -one conversations. There would be people gathering in halls or in churches to tell people the news about the HIV cure. You'd be driving, flying around. Just think about the millions and billions of man hours and dollars that would be spent trying to spread the news about this wonderful new cure. And then it gets to this beautiful verse 15. And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is Paul's point. This is going, it's obvious, this is obvious, this is obvious, this is obvious. And the very last one. If no one sends them. So I was thinking about this HIV cure and thinking about the thousands of little processes that make that happen. Thinking about a little job interview 
where someone is being employed for some little administrative job that's going to roll out something. Thinking right through across the world where suddenly you've got tents and doctors and nurses and people and, and, and transportation and people flying in and people hiring cars and just, are you with me? You're following this idea. And then right at the end of all of that, joy. Joy. You just think of the thousands of testimonies of Mothers who, like Hebrew says, have received back their children from the dead. It's a sentence of death over this child, and suddenly this child is healed. Incredible. You can just hear millions of these stories. And this is how Paul says it. That's why the scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Can you see how many roles would be needed if you have to think about it? Imagine you were in charge of rolling this thing out around the world. Just how many roles of people would need to be involved? Can you see that the person organizing the car to be waiting at the airport is as important as the person who's on the plane going? The person who administers that thing. Can you see the knock-on effect of someone choosing not to do what they were meant to do? So there's the doctors, there's the tent, there's thousands of people lining up, there the information's gone out, the flyers have gone out, the loud hailers have announced to this town that this is what's happening, everyone's arrived, and someone didn't send the truck with what's needed to bring the cure. Very diplomatic. So I'm being very diplomatic. Excuse me. Called to stay, called to go, or choose to disobey. Friends, this is what I want to tell you that everyone must participate in kingdom work. All of us. I want to tell you that calling to stay is just as important as calling to go. There's nothing Kate and I are saying tonight that is more important than the very thing that you're meant to do tomorrow morning when you go into your workplace. Without stayers, you don't get goers. Without goers, stayers get unhealthy. Churches become inward focused. We, we lose mission. Can you see them both at work in this passage? You see how there's the goers. Who's going to go? Who's going to tell them? Then who's going to send them? There's these two things constantly in play. Let me tell you just a few things on what it means to be called to go. Just four things quickly. You want, you want headspace for this? Steph does. Why do we go? There's just four little things I won't take long. Go because the Lord of the harvest has called you to work in the field. That's why you go. Take God your counsel, all of those things. We could do another whole session on just like how to make sure that you've heard the voice of God. That's another whole thing. But I just want to say this to you. There's a lot of ways to go without going. There's a lot of ways to go and go. It's not like we're talking location, we're talking geography, those kind of things. But don't just think, lead church elder, pastor, church planter guy, I'm not that great, I don't have to worry about God pulling me to go. Actually, when we're in these churches in the UK, they have desperate need of people who are just well disciplined. Just someone who's followed Jesus for 15 years, who loves Jesus, who knows how to tithe, who knows how to set up a few chairs, and who knows how occasionally to say, be encouraged, thank you. That is the need. That's the need. That's what these people, when you speak to them overseas, this is what they are crying out for. They say, we're taking our family, we're doing this, we're doing this incredible difficult thing, not us, them. We're planting this church in this hard place. If you could just come and help. 
Just do anything to help us. We would take you. We would literally be the most wonderful blessing of God. And I just want to blow our minds open a little bit to just realizing that we go because the Lord of the harvest has called us to work in the field. And that the work is not this, this five-year theological degree before you can go. It's simple. It might even be that you just want to travel a little bit. But instead of just traveling rapidly, that you could go and you could travel and you could find a place where God could reach you. That you could be an incredible encouragement for six months. Sometimes I worry that we get so stuck on the call, the call, the call, the specific call of God, and God is actually far more worried about what we do in the field that we're in. Just what are you doing where you are? What are you doing? The second thing I want to say on, on those who call to go is go with the right message burning in your heart. Don't go with your family's version of the gospel. Don't go with legalism. Go with the true gospel burning. Go with the clarity. This is what the gospel is. The gospel comes with grace to set free. Go with the clarity of who the Savior is. You're not him. They don't need you. God's mission is going on. We just little drop, just jumping into the street. Praise God. But go with the clarity in your mind, sober-minded clarity, and go with compassion in your heart. Compassion for the helpless and harassed, like Jesus says. Three, go with the track record of fruitfulness. Do you give now? Are you committed now? Do you evangelize now? Friends, if I take an apple tree and I plant it in Somerset West, it grows apples. Do you know the amazing thing? If I take that same seed and I plant it in Japan, do you know what it grows? Apples. It's the same thing. Don't have these outlandish ideas that when I get there, then I'm going to be this man or woman of God that does this and this thing. What you do now is what you will do there. And of course God is growing us. Of course God is maturing us. But I want us to hear some of, hopefully you hear in my heart, not any criticism criticism in there. Number four, go with the heart for meaningful gospel community. Meaningfully commit to the local church. This is such a, such a silly point in a sense, but what joy and strength this would bring to God's worldwide mission. I just want to paint a picture for you. Imagine if every immigrating family, and guys, we don't want to immigrate for the right reasons even, but imagine if every believing immigrating family or single or couple asked, simple question, where could I land that I could meaningfully be joining kingdom work? Who needs encouraging? Who needs support? Who needs someone who just knows how to tithe and put out some chairs and love me in the name of Jesus and possibly lead a life group, or maybe not even? And imagine if just because of that thought, some people who are immigrating anyway decided that in God and in prayer, they would move the pin from just the place that Tripadvisor says was the nicest part of the UK to somewhere else that just they said, this looks like they need someone. And they just didn't randomly put the pin in the map anywhere. But we could just divert a little bit of that into, let's go there. Let's help there. Does that make sense? Call to stay. Stay with a fresh sense of commitment that this is your field. New gen, this is your field. It's so blessing that you guys, many of you would know Nathan Fisher is on eldership. In this process that we've been going through, he came to me one day and he said, 
I've been so encouraged in the Lord as I watch you going and the conviction in your heart to go. I have gone to God and said, God, am I supposed to go yet? And God said, no, you're supposed to stay. So he says, I have such a fresh conviction in my heart that I am supposed to stay. That can't be bad. That's a wonderful thing. Praise God you're here. Praise God that there's much work here. And someone said, Wes, put your hand to the power. Please, guys, put your hand to the power. Everything above about going applies to you. Will you support? Will you encourage? Can I just tell you that Kate and I and our family are going because of so many people who invested in us stay. People who stay. Some of you in this room have poured your lives out into us, discipling us, caring for us, just like Kate was saying thank you. And because of that, we are able to go because people stay. I had something stirring in my heart of worship, and it's um, it's very cheeky. And I have no idea that I've got the business to say it, but actually, you know what? God's, God's, yeah, He's a little more important, right? Some of you sitting here tonight, you have a problem with the way that this church is going and the model that Stephen has on leading, the elders are leading this church. I don't even know how to say this, but I'm just going to go for it. I want to ask you just a simple question as I close. I've got lots of other things I want to say, but I'm going to leave them there for now. I want to ask you a simple question. What pleases God? Come on, Peter, where's your, where's your verse tonight? What pleases God? Obedience pleases God. You see that? Faith. Scripture teaches that faith, obedience, please God. Alright? And let me ask you a question. What if Kate and I had misheard God? Because trust me, we've asked that question a number of times. Lord, what if we haven't heard you? Kate asked me some time in the process, is it too late to say, we're going to stay? <laughs> we love the couple coming to lead the church so much. Honestly, we just feel like, oh, we'd love to stay and just be pastored by them for 10 years. It would be incredible. And you know what You know what the conviction is? I've prayed and asked God again and again, Lord, what if we've got this wrong? Do you know what has come resounding? over me and over our family again and again. Even if you have, I'm delighted with your faith. I love your heart for obedience. I love that what you think you're hearing, even if it's wrong, that you're running after it with all your heart and all your guts and you put you burn your ships. And there's faith in our hearts. And I can feel the sense of the effort. I don't think we have, by the way. But I can feel the sense of the affirmation of the Father saying, even if you have, I love it. I love it. And I want to ask you, this is where I'm getting a little bit cheeky, but I felt something in the worship of that exact emotion about Nugent and about your guys' journey. Do you know what I love about this friend of mine? Is that he does have some quirky ideas does do some strange things from time to time. He won't hug me nearly as much as I ask him to hug me. He gives me one a month. But there's a faith in the steps part that when God sees something, he wants to go after it. And he wants to take you with him. That's right from our disagreements around Torbett back in the day. 
all the way through to some of the things that you guys are doing right now, where I see something of God in this church, we seem prepared to push boundaries that I don't know how to push. And you know what I think God is seeing? Look, look at God bringing the lights on right now, eh? Prophesy! <laughs> but I want to say something to you guys tonight, that if God is looking over this church, I want to ask you a question. What pleases It's not getting it perfect. It's not getting every single thing correct. Faith. Obedience. And I think that you guys are running after that. And I think that's wonderful. And I think I don't even care so much. And I'm sorry I'm speaking out of turn perhaps. But I just think, I'm not, I'm not shutting down dialogue. I'm not shutting down those things. I'm just trying to paint a bigger picture in my heart and my spirit we were worshipping. I just felt something of the pleasedness of God. That this community would go after something different. Would do something a little out the box, a little uncomfortable. And I, my comment coming in from outside tonight is won't you throw your heart in? Won't you get stuck in? Where you stop the conversations and the corridors about the nonsense and what, and just put your heart in and say, Lord, I'm going to follow the best I know how. I want to put my faith into this thing because you are pleased with faith. You are pleased with obedience. So I don't know if that's okay, but anyway. Father, that's okay. Thank you, Tommy. It's fine. Lord Jesus, I've gone over time. As per usual, thank you that that's okay too. Um, I just ask you for this church. I ask you for this eldership. I ask you for these leaders. I ask you for those you are speaking to here tonight to go. I ask you for those that you are freshly calling them to stay. Lord, those who are literally just in the wider in this church, there's people this week who are having conversations about leaving. And Lord, through us as almost standing in the gap, I pray that through your spirit you come and put fresh. We're staying. We're here. We're committing our hearts. Father, your kingdom is amazing. Your work is wonderful. Your ways are mysterious. What fools Joshua and his crew must have looked like walking around Jericho over and over again, day after day, taking the mocking and the criticism from the walls. And yet, God, we see all through Scripture how you work in strange, mysterious, wonderful ways. You take couples from Stellenbosch with five families and tell them to give it all up and move because you're God. You do wonderful things. And tonight again, we just bring our hearts in fresh commitment. So we are yours. We will follow. Speak clearly. Speak repeatedly because we struggle to hear you. Make it clear, God. For our stubborn hearts, make it clear. But Lord, when you have, and even on the journey, we will put our faith rather than cynicism, and we will follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.
Paul Kent, thank you so much for coming out and sharing. Thank you for uh, your story, for your faithfulness, uh, and for coming and encouraging us. Um, uh, just in the midst of that, for those of us that are studying, um, in the midst of our studying, uh, God comes and still calls us to a going. Um, there's a going to our neighbors next door. We live right next door to us. There's a going to our friends, our colleagues, the people we work with, to our family. Uh, and then there's a going for some of us as we go on mission this next little while as a short-term you know, trip to Indo, to Malawi, or even across the road. We're going to hear more about that this coming Sunday. And so even in our state, there's an element of going that we're called to. And so all of which you're calling on us just resonates and makes sense because I tell you, in each one of those examples, whether it's to a neighbor or to Indo or across the street there, there's an intimidation and there's something daunting about that. That we're saying, no, surely not. God's not asking you to go to that neighbor. And yet he, he may just be doing that. So as we come and as we consider this, this might be like, look, God is faithful, maybe he's living the unseen, and he's saying, I want to do something to all this. I want to double that church in Tunica, and here's half a dollar. Yeah. Amen.
going to be an easy exercise. And maybe even more than that, there's some of you that are sitting here saying, so sure, maybe God's calling you to go away. And that's okay. I'm going to allow you to go away from you for a time. But maybe you are that tithing, Bible believing, propping in the best kind of sense person that's going to go away with it. Only after coming, quit waiting, add value. And we don't know what they're going to. You don't necessarily know that you're going to run into that because God is stirring in your heart. In the midst of this, there's a connection and a conversation that can be had that maybe God's willing to do that. I feel willing to be strategic to partner with these guys in prayers and in credit and finances and even more than that to send someone to the Lord. But I want to have to be so I'm done. Thanks, thanks. Thank you all have a great evening.